0: Welcome to the BCP Propers Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Wedgworth, Rector of Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. And I'm joined by my friend and associate, Clayton Hutchins, Vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church in Milwaukee. Clayton, great to be back with you.
1: It's good to be with you as well.
0: So on our podcast, we're working through the uh, Sunday and other Holy Day lectionary texts in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Last week we explained some of the logic of how that works, and so this week we're just going to keep going forward uh, with the Sunday propers. And this week is the second Sunday after Trinity. So there are two halves of the uh, church year in this lectionary. First half, you could call the uh, incarnation cycle or uh, the life of Christ, going uh, with Advent, moving through Christmas, coming to the climax at Easter, and then sort of finishing up with Pentecost or with Sunday. And the second half of the year is the Trinity season, and that is mostly concerned with Christian living application in the life of the church. And so you'll notice these weeks definitely have a moral application emphasis, and they build on one another. So the first Sunday after Trinity, introducing the concept of love, love being the the chief uh, calling of the Christian life, also the summary of the commandments. And now we're into the second Sunday after Trinity, and there's still going to be an emphasis on love. But this week, it's maybe that translation of love that we often use, charity. Uh, Love for your neighbors and those in need. But the Collect really uh, contextualizes this in terms of trusting God. I think that'll be very important for us this week. I'll read the collect, and then we can discuss it, and then we'll apply it to the uh, scripture passages so that we can see how they come together. So here's the collect for the second Sunday after Trinity. O Lord, who never failest to help and govern those whom thou dost bring up in thy steadfast fear and love, keep us, we beseech thee, under the protection of thy good providence and make us to have a perpetual fear and love of thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And so, Clayton, I think it's interesting, um, if I was jumping right to the scripture passages, I would be all about, you know, loving your neighbor, doing good things uh, for your neighbor, uh, based on the epistle um, and how that follows from last week. But the Collect actually is emphasizing our need to trust God that he's going to take care of us in this endeavor. Did you notice that?
1: Yeah, so um I was kind of seeing in, in this collect um a a focus on it's certainly God word, right? It's like that's where the focus is. Uh God's described as the one who brings us up in his steadfast fear and love. And then we ask that he would grant us a perpetual fear and love of thy holy name. Um so I was kind of noticing um that component uh, that the love and the collect is is primarily toward God you know a love and fear toward God
0: mm-hmm yeah we are called to love and fear him that's right and then mm-hmm. we know then he will help and govern us mm-hmm. and so if we're gonna do this work of loving others and applying Christian uh, the Christian faith to our life um, there could be a lot of doubts that come into our mind you know is this really going to work? Uh, can I afford to give away this money? Is this person going to take advantage of me, etc? So we have to first trust God in his protection, his governance and his assistance to cover us through mm-hmm. the rest of our life.
1: Yeah, which is how it starts describing God and his character, which is how, I think pretty much all the colleagues start maybe there's an exception somewhere i don't know of but you know O oh lord who never failest to help and govern those whom thou dost bring up in thy steadfast fear and love so <clears throat> um you know that's what god does he never fails to help and govern those whom he brings up
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um it's interesting that he never fails to do that and then what we end up asking for in the petition section is first keep us under under the protection of thy good providence, Um, which is kind of interesting because it says God never fails to help and govern. And so then we ask him, uh, you know, keep protecting us, uh, keep us under your protection. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're asking, in a sense, we're asking God to do something that he never fails to do. Um, And that's just kind of how prayer works, I think. Uh, It's instructive to kind of reflect on that. like, sometimes we wonder, if, if God is sovereign, why pray? Um, or, you know, if God knows the future, you know, why pray? All these sorts of things. Um, well, our prayers, you know, are means that he appoints and uses to bring about um, uh, his infallible purposes, right? So when we pray to God, we're rooting it in his character, and, um, and that's kind of the basis of our prayers. So... Uh, Yeah, I I don't know, that's just kind of an interesting thing to notice there.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really basic truth that's super important. Um, God's sovereignty and his providence are consistent with our response to him and our responsibility and the two go together and work through one another. Um, It's an error, it's a basic Mm -hmm. confusion to say, well since God always does what he's going to do, then It doesn't matter what I do. Um, Mm -hmm. Rather, since God always does what he says and he's always consistent, his purposes are always uh, brought to fruition, that's why I should trust him, Mm -hmm. listen to him, ask for him to do those things. Yeah.
1: Right. um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thy will be done.
1: (laughs) Mm hmm. So, and, you know, in a sense, if you were just to say, well, it says God never fails to help and govern, so I don't need to pray for any protection or anything like that. Um, well, if that's just kind of how you lived your life, you'd probably end up not actually acknowledging God, you know, much, and your fear and love of God would probably waver <laughs> if that's just kind of how you approach things. Um, and so, but but who does he never fail to help and govern? Those who he brings up in his steadfast fear and love, um, who mm-hmm. he... You know, calls upon to pray, um, and so, you know, p- p- prayer. We could say many things about it, but one of the things that it does is it does keep us in His steadfast love, and fear um, is another way to look at it. I was just thinking; my mind went to David's prayer uh, in Second Samuel seven, where the Davidic covenant is given. The Lord promises him offspring, um, and then, um, you know, David has this prayer of gratitude and. Uh, He says, you know, um, who am I? What is my house that you brought me this far? Um, You've spoken of your servant's house from a great while to come. uh, And because of your promise, you have brought about all this greatness. Um, And he goes on to say, um, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning this house, and do as you have spoken. (laughs) yeah i mean it's kind of right there right i mean Mm -hmm. he's giving thanks that he's promised this and he's just saying confirm it and and do it and uh you know that's that's meaningful that's not pointless that's part of biblical prayer is um praying that god would continue to do what we already know he's promised to do um so there's probably much more we could say on that but that's one thing to to see here in the collect
0: Now, one thing I noticed through the Trinity season, and this may not be the case for every week, uh, there's a lot of weeks and I'd have to check each and every one, but many of the weeks, it seems to me that the collect and the... um, kind of the consistent theme that you're following from week to week, because you sort of, things sound very familiar. You kind of get a feel for what's going on with the larger argument. Um, it seems to be that that really comes out in the epistle readings, uh, for Trinity. And, um, that uh in, in other times of the church year uh, i think the gospel readings are more prominent they're they're putting forth kind of the big idea um it's not that one or the other you have to pick i mean as a big part of our podcast is to show how they go together but there's usually one that's you know much clearer it kind of grabs your attention and then you follow that to understand the others. And I think here, um, last week and this week, the epistles are taking a little bit of more center stage, um, and there's sort of a connection here. Uh, Last week's epistle, uh, giving that introduction that God is love, so then we have to love one another, and loving one another means um, keeping the commandments uh, out of a spirit of love. And so this week's epistle is, is repeating that, um, and it's giving an emphasis on our need to be charitable uh, and give to those in need. Mm-hmm. So 1 John 3 starts off that we're in a context of conflict. Um, verse 13, marvel not if the world hate you. Um, but then it quickly moves into the need that we shouldn't hate our brother. We should love our brother. So, so hating is what the world does. Loving is what the Christian does.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, we, have a, we have a Christological foundation for this. Um, hereby we perceive uh, the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, Mm -hmm. imitating Christ uh, and a sacrificial giving for others as an act of love. Uh, And then it moves straight to charity. Whoso hath the world's good, and seeth his brother having need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Mm -hmm. And then again it repeats, uh, let us love not only in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So there's a main point being uh, thrown out here. Uh, we should love following the example of Christ, uh, and this will lead to giving to our brothers when they are in need. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and like the uh, Trinity 1 epistle, this is once again explicitly rooting our love in that preceding love of God, as he read, um, uh, the love of God... Uh, is, is the truth that's there. He laid down his life for us, um, and therefore we should love as well, and we should lay down our lives for the brethren. And there is this focus on the brethren here, or the brothers. Um, specifically, John's talking about the need for Christians to show love to one another. Certainly we should show love to all and everyone. Uh, there's, there's plenty of scripture to back that up, but, but John is focusing on this idea of the mark of a true Christian is you love the brethren. Um, you've been born of God, so you love whoever, and you love God, so you love whoever has been born of God, um, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of this family environment. It, as the colleague says, um, God brings us up in his steadfast fear and love, so it's like we're his children, and so we have brothers uh, in the church that, that we ought to show love to just as God did, and <clears throat> it's interesting John says uh, that this, doing this, is how we know we are of the truth and assure our hearts before him. Um, maybe a bit of an unpopular idea in, in, in some quarters, but um, actually John says you could see um, you know, this love at work in your heart and in your life. And by that, you would know that you're of the truth. Um, you'll know that you truly belong to God and that his spirit's within you. Uh, God Absolutely. is love, right? This is a major theme of, of, of John, of 1 John. Um, uh, Christians are those who have been born anew by the spirit. And you can tell <laughs> uh, it makes a difference in your life. And Absolutely. so love is one of those fruits of the spirit that he points to. We can find assurance from it there. And this made me think of... Um, The communion exhortations, um, which mention how, uh, uh, well, the Sunday before communion, it says that uh, you should come uh, to the heavenly feast as a worthy partaker, and the way to do that is first to examine your life and conduct by the rule of God's commandments and, um, you know, make any... um, amendments, uh, repent of anything that needs to be repented of, uh, be ready to restore anyone you've wronged, um, and and so forth. And it says th- that it's requisite that no man should come to the Holy Communion but with a full trust in God's mercy and a quiet conscience. And therefore, if there's any of you who cannot by this means quiet his own conscience, but require further comfort or counsel, let him come to me or to another minister. And um, by the ministry of God's holy word, receive the benefit of absolution. It's just interesting that um, it's saying that you should be able to quiet your conscience by doing what it just said—examining <laughs> your life and conduct, and um, uh, you know, recognizing anything you need to repent of, doing so. And if after doing that, if 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 you aren't able to quiet your conscience that way, and You know, um, kind of do what John's saying here, you know, recognize, you know, that that God is within you. Uh, Then that's when you go to the minister.
0: Yeah. First John is a big book about um, how you know (laughs) that you're a Christian. Uh, that just comes up again and again. And, and there are certain passages that are so striking that people are kind of scared of them. You know, First John is the book where it says if you've been born of God, then you no longer sin. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, every good Bible teacher and pastor knows that you have to qualify that. It doesn't mean you never, ever sin, mm-hmm. but it means you're not. Living a life of sin. It's not a pervasive Characteristic of your walk Um, And if you do sin you repent you confess it Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that comes out all throughout John, Uh, but John I think does make the um, He does make the qualification that the Life and the fruit are an overflow and effect of your love. So they're Mm -hmm. um, This can't just be externalism. It's got to be an overflowing of your heart in response to the God's word.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And it's just interesting to note as well, you know, just going back to that communion exhortation, um, that uh, it's not saying... You know, examine your hearts, and then if you see any sin there, um, then you know you're not a Christian. (laughs) No, it says, you know, examine your hearts, and if you see any ways you've offended, bewail your own sinfulness, confess it with full purpose of amendment. Right. And John, you know, John recognizes that as well. He says in, in chapter one, if, if any of you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And actually the truth isn't in you. Right. So it's, it is this balance. It's not a kind of perfectionism. Um, but there is there is a difference that that uh, the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. Um, and one other thing I notice here, um, that theme of keeping God's commandments that, that carries over from the previous week, uh, the collect of the previous week, the epistle reading. Um, Here it says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Um, It's just interesting uh, that it says, um, you know, keep the commandments. Um, uh, It says, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And then he says, And this is his commandment, Singular, that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Um, You know, is there one commandment or is there two? Um, It kind of alternates between them. Right.
0: Right. No, I think that that's absolutely true. You have the uh, confession of faith and the response of faith. And you can separate those in part because, um, you know, there's there's a priority of you hear first and then you respond. (laughs) But you can't totally separate them. It's not as if um, it would be possible to not respond in faith. Uh, And so they're so they're linked together in that way. And it's why the scriptures and other places and the Gospels, um, Jesus says you, you will know people, uh, you'll know both teachers, uh, but you'll also know his people by their fruit. Hmm. Um, just as you can tell a tree by the fruit, you'll know them. Right. Okay, well, then we have the God's Ball for this week. And at first glance, it, it may not be as obvious what's uh, going on here. And I think we said that last week, too. So these, these Trinity uh, propers um, are going to require a little bit of meditation and pondering to see what's happening here. But the gospel selection is from Luke 14, 16 through 24, uh, the parable of the invitation to the great supper. And so a certain man made a great supper, bid many, uh, and he sent a servant to invite them, and then they all have excuses. (laughs) The first Mm. says he can't come because he bought a plot of ground, he needs to go see it. Another bought oxen, has to go prove them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then another has just gotten married. (laughs) So the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. and the servant said lord it is done as thou commanded and yet there is room and so he says bring in more go to the highways the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled uh, for i say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper um now this is a great passage um it uh it actually is the foundational text the background for the second uh, exhortation for the week prior to communion which i, I really enjoyed doing that one that um in the bcp you have the exhortation to be read you know in the communion service and it's always the same but then there are two that you read the week prior to communion to give people an announcement and a warning uh, the first of those is is sort of your all-purpose announcement it tells people mm-hmm. what they need to do to be ready and how to do it. Uh, you, you were quoting from that one earlier. But the second one, it says, is if the minister can tell that the people are reluctant to come, <laughs> which I mm-hmm. I think that's so fascinating. It shows you how history is really real and things can change and in this day and age you know how many anglican ministers would say that that's their problem um, mm-hmm. that the people are reluctant to come uh, probably yeah. not i mean in our day the danger is probably the opposite that you know, people want communion all the time but aren't aren't preparing prepared for it. yeah that's
1: right yeah so that practice just to make that explicit would have been a less frequent practice of communion in the first place, right?
0: Yes, yes. I mean, I think that different – the cathedrals, my understanding, were having communion every week. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that everybody that was in the building would actually commune, but the cathedrals would do it every week. But then the uh, the sort of the more smaller rural parishes were doing it uh, less frequently. And I think that there was – you know, a range of options. You have some uh, that were probably doing it once a month, some that were doing it quarterly. But um, I think in the, uh, the canon law of 1604, I'd have to double check that. I think it sets a minimum uh, for, is it three times a year? I think, you know, you have to do it three times a year. And then one of those has got to be around Easter. So you can see in the uh, ho- the holy days that uh, some of the bigger days they give them um, extra days of service to accommodate that. You know, if you were living in England where every um, citizen <laughs> is a member, so they've all got to commune and they've got to for sure commune on certain days. And then you could have a practical problem on your hands if you're a smaller church. So, Easter, and then you get some days after Easter, with Sunday, some days after with Sunday, Christmas, several days after Christmas. Those were days where they thought, okay, you know, these are going to be the mandatory communion days. So, uh, that's why you see mm-hmm. some of that going on. Um, and if you didn't have weekly communion uh, in the parish churches, you would do. Uh, morning prayer and anti-communion, which is the first half of the communion service. Um, and you would sort of conclude with the prayer for the church militant.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So like you said, it's kind of another situation. I have to confess, I, you know, we don't do communion every week at my parish. Um, so I do get to read these exhortations, but I have to confess, I've never read this second one Uh simply because I have not noticed people negligent to come. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I... uh, Maybe there's... You know, maybe a modern application would be not so much for the same reason um, in our context as it was then. Uh, Maybe nowadays it'd be more... Not necessarily people are avoiding the community part as such, but people are just generally not very consistent in coming to church. (laughs) In which case, you know... Uh, something like this might be appropriate for that other reason um, so
0: you know i i have used this one i rotate between the two um and uh the, i've gotten a pretty good response from the second one i think because the people recognize the biblical foundation um and uh in that ex- in that second exhortation it, you know it does say like you know, don't make all these excuses to why you can't come. Uh, And it says, uh, such excuses are uh, not so easily accepted before God. Uh, You know, a really, just a really good line there.
1: Um, Yeah. I'm going to start using it starting this Sunday. I think I'm going (laughs) to do it. Um, But it is super intriguing, I think, that there are, um, I think, these – I don't know how clear the illusion is in the epistle one, but, I mean, that that issue of knowing that God abides in you by the Spirit, by the love that you show, really did make me think of that first communion exhortation, uh, which kind of talks about the marks of, you know, um, of, of conversion and, and, and kind of um, examining your life and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh and, and, and I already saw that. And then when I got to consider the gospel in preparation for this, then I saw, oh, well, there's the second one, too. It's almost like this is a communion preparation Sunday, almost. Oh, <laughs> uh, there you, you go. That's, yeah,
0: no, that, I think that's really interesting. So, yeah, in this gospel, um, it's a parable of the kingdom. I think that that's uh, pretty pretty clear here um, and isn't the supper Isn't that always coming up? Um, I mean, that's in the end of Revelation. You're invited to the supper. Jesus says, you're going to eat my flesh, drink my blood. Um, Something about life and the kingdom and communion with Christ is like, like a meal. So these people are invited to this meal, but they have ordinary earthly reasons not to come. And this is uh, displeasing to the master, so he basically says, well, fine, Uh, they can't come now. (laughs) Like, if they don't want to come, then they're not allowed to come, uh, and I'm going to replace them with others. And the kinds of people they're replaced by are the lowly, poor, the maimed, uh, the blind... And then just people hanging out on the highways and the hedges. (laughs) Just go start grabbing people and bring them in, and that's who will get the kingdom.
1: Right. Yeah. And so I think there's this, this, um, yeah, this focus on there's a certain kind of danger to what you view as ordinary life responsibilities. <laughs> um, you know, as you look at these excuses, on one level, as you read them, none of them seem that bad. I mean, they're all good things. Um, but uh, good things can get in the way of better things, and, and, and good things can be used to not do uh, other higher responsibilities. <laughs> um, and so when that happens with God, uh, what we really have is... is idolatry, uh, lifting up, a, a another duty or a good thing to a, a way higher place than it should have. Um, so I, I think there's that component and, and maybe that relates to, you know, keep us in your fear. Um, don't, you know, may we fear you and put, you know, faithfulness to you, our, our duties to you above all other things. Um, and, Um, So that's one thing. And then another thing I notice here is, you know, who gets invited, not who we expect, right? The poor, maimed, halt, blind. um, People we tend to overlook or uh, not be, you know, eager to invite to a big, glorious, exclusive, you know, party or something like that. Um, and, And maybe there's a link there to the epistle where the epistle mentions, you know, The concrete way of showing love, of seeing your brother who has need and closing your heart against him. Um, Here, it's the poor, um, those who are in need, who end up inheriting the kingdom, while the more well-off, the rich, those with lands and and cattle, they're they're idolizing those things, and so they forfeit it, um, which is... Um, instructive for us um, when it comes to kind of what does that fear of God actually look like? What is that love for neighbor? You know, how can that parse out in our lives? Um, And this parable too, I was looking into this. um, As I read, I was like, this is familiar. This is in another gospel. It's in Matthew chapter 22. And there it's contextually situated. It might be, you know, Jesus told this parable again, but kind of, you know, in a different context for a different reason and slightly different details, but very similar there it's in the context of kind of a jew gentile situation um it comes on the heels of other parables relating to that and so it makes us think of the jews as those initially invited but then the gentiles are brought in um but here there's actually not that context that i saw um in in luke 14 um and so I mean, uh, unless we should read that into it, I don't know. But uh, in in, in any case, if we're not doing that, I mean, Jesus is at a feast and he had just said, when you give a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends or brothers or rich neighbors. Uh, Invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind right um and so there is that yeah, focus that, just on kind of um, you know that if we're component, doing just simply a bible study the, the, Jew Gentile then the
0: two I think. are reconcilable fairly easily uh the reason the jews didn't respond is because they were essentially acting as rich people privileged um, taking some sort of trust in uh, even though it was gifts given to them by god um Because they had so connected it to their sort of ethnic election, uh, they began to treat it as if it was their own uh, native giftings. So the the root problem is the same. But I think the BCP here, you're right to notice, it's choosing the one that is not, uh, doesn't have that particular angle on it because uh, the focus now is just universal human issues. Um, You know, we've all got this problem. And so, yeah. Don't don't um, don't think that you can put God off. I'll get to him later. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll 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 get back to church after uh, I've done all the things in my life I want to do. <laughs> um, that's you know that's self righteousness. That's presumptuousness, um, and uh, you might be rejected. Now I think that. This reading is how we can understand a little bit of what's going on with the Old Testament selections. Because my uh, my first run through this in preparation, I was really trying to stru- figure out like what is going on with this Old Testament lessons. Um, the first and second lesson for this week comes from Judges. So again, um, the first lessons are always Old Testament, and they're moving in order through the old testament. So last week we did Joshua, this week we do Judges. But you're only going to get one week of Judges and the selections are Judges 4 and Judges 5. So it's essentially the same story. <laughs> Judges 4 is the narrative, Judges 5 is a song mm-hmm. which is retelling the events of Judges 4. <laughs> yeah. Um so so the the whole Treatment of judges is right here. <laughs> uh, this one story, and it's the story of Deborah, of Barak, and Jael. Now, right away, that's that's remarkable, because if you had to ask any ordinary, you know, Christian who knows the book of Judges just a little bit, you know, what are the highlights of the book? What are your most famous passages? Uh, You know, if if you're only going to talk about Judges for a week, what are you going to talk about? And, you know, nine out of 10 are going to say, oh, Samson, that's got to be in there. Uh, And then probably Gideon will come after that. Um, I don't know if, if the Deborah, uh, Barak jail story, you know, is even number three or not. It'd be interesting to kind of ask around, but, but I, 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 certainly doubt anybody's making it number one, but the prayer book decides to, <laughs> and it didn't just do like judges four in the morning and then do a Samson reading in the evening. It's going to do both, uh, both morning and evening are going to be about Deborah Barak and JL. <laughs> So why that? That's you know the question. Why do they want to talk about this one, and uh, how does it relate to the New Testament readings?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a a good question to ask, um, and you know maybe we'll get some more clarity on that as we explain the passage. But um, I'm I'm wondering if one potential answer is to say um it's not necessarily like these first lessons are not making a statement on what you know necessarily the most important chapter or whatever was in that book or like this is the central portion of the book or something like that right. but instead thematically the story of deborah and and and, and, and Barrack fits with what the other emphases are on this day and yes Yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering about. Um, Just kind of, you know, initially to start off, um, you know, verse 1 says that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And we learn from um, Judges chapter 2 what that means, verse 19, that there's this pattern in Judges, this cycle of whenever the judge dies, Israel turns back and goes after other gods, uh, serving them, bowing down to them. And then that leads to them being subjugated as a judgment from the Lord to a foreign, you know, power, and then they eventually cry out uh, for help. They cry out, and then the Lord delivers them, and that cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. So, so maybe one thing to notice is, you know, um, the BCP, you know, first lessons. Um, we're tracking through like <laughs> Old Testament in a year. Uh, the major parts. So there's no need to do multiple cycles, right? Let's just focus on this cycle, Deborah and Barak. Uh, that's one way to look at it. No need to try and get into more than one. Let's just focus on one story of this cycle, which is illustrative. Um, and but yeah, so but what is that basic problem? Well, the people are lapsing into idolatry. So they're they're forsaking the Lord. They're failing to persevere in the fear and love of God. Right, as the Collect says. And so as a result, they are under a heavy, hard providence, um, foreign powers. And then essentially they cry out for help. Uh, They cry out for um, the Lord to act in mercy and grant the protection of his good providence. Um, So I think there's some um, strong connections to the Collect just on that kind of thematic level, the big picture here.
0: What's particularly striking about Judges four and five? Well, the fact that the judge is Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and uh, in in the Hebrew it actually makes explicit, you know, a woman. (laughs) That word, the wife, can can also just be translated woman. Um, So. That's what's really remarkable here is that a woman is judging Israel. She's a prophetess. And Mm -hmm. this is going to be emphasized several times in the story, the fact that it's women, um, because Deborah, she has her commander, Barak. And this is paralleled against their opponents, their opposition. So you've got Jabin, the king of Canaan. So he's a parallel to Deborah. Deborah is a judge or a judges. Jabin is a king. Then you have Sisera, the captain, who fights. And Deborah has a captain who fights. And that's going to be Barak. But as the story unfolds, um, Barak... Wavers a little bit. He, he's timid. He is. Uh, he he is unwilling entirely to trust God as speaking through the prophetess. And so the story then says, "Well, then the glory will go to a woman." So so that's really the hinge of this narrative. There's lots of interesting action, very visual stuff going on, but that's that's kind of the hook. So, um, Deborah, the prophetess, the judge,ish calls her Captain Barak and says, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go, draw towards Mount Tabor, take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. So a promise from God. God who always does what he says, right? His providence always comes true. He never fails to help and govern those who uh, trust him.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But Barak doesn't totally trust. He sort of half-trusts. Uh, Verse 8 of Judges 4, Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Yeah. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Mm -hmm. And that really is a big kind of emphasis, a bit of a punch there. Um, Maybe to modern readers it's not as obvious, but you you better believe in earlier centuries that line rung out. Mm -hmm. Um, The Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Uh, The journey will not be for thine honor so mm-hmm. so there is a rebuke here there is a bit of a judgment and the people that do get the honor are the women mm-hmm. deborah and then as we learn later
1: Jael. yes yeah and so with with beric you kind of have a, a connection to the gospel where an invitation, a divine you know, invitation, is given out, and then there's there's hesitancy, there's a lack of uh, full kind of commitment to it, full obedience. Um, there's bringing up excuses uh, not to come, you know, to the feast in that case. And here we have something similar. There's a similar kind of hesitance here, and and there's um, as you said, um, you know, he, he essentially says no unless you. You know, come. If you don't come, I won't go. But it's the Lord who commanded him to go, so you know he should be willing to go whether or not she comes. Uh, And he's he's not orienting rightly um, the command of God with his own desires here. And he's yeah, he's showing that reluctance and and inadequate fear of God, right? Um, Which is one of the things we're praying for in the collect for this week, Um, and it ends up leading. Uh, it, it doesn't lead to his glory. Um, he's the military man, you know. He's the commander, uh, but he's not actually going to get the glory for the battle. It's going to go to to one who's unexpected, um, the uh, the wife of Heber the Kenite, Jael. Uh, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's really important, um, you know, the 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 big narrative action at the end of this. So it does take you through the battle, and you well, we can say a little bit about that in a minute, uh, how the Lord miraculously delivers Israel through the battle. But then it takes you to the final death of Sisera, and that's uh, by the hand of Jael, the wife of Heber. And um, – he, um, basically, Cicero is on the run. He's trying to, you know, he's been routed, so he's just trying to save himself. So he comes to her tent. She invites him in, which is suggestive, controversial, provocative to enter into her tent uh, he asks for water she gives him milk um, the next chapter even mentions that it has curds, so perhaps this is um, yogurt or cheese or something um, also uh, and then he goes to sleep You know, he's, he's exhausted from the battle he's had a bit of a feast, however small um, and he, he's asleep he's uh, exhausted and while he's asleep She then takes a a nail and a hammer, or a a tent peg, and she smote the nail into his temples, Mm -hmm. fastened it into the ground, and so he died. Wow, really visual stuff. Uh, That's repeated in verse 22. Barak finally shows up. He's, He's looking for Sisera, and she says, Come, I will show you the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. Mm -hmm. So, extremely visual stuff, extremely graphic. Um, But the glory is given to Jael. And this is repeated in chapter 5, which is the evening lesson, the first lesson for evening prayer. Um, The Song of Deborah. When she is uh, retelling what happened, uh, verse 6, the days of Shamgar, so that's a previous judge, and then it says, in the days of Jael. So it's not the days of Barak. (laughs) It's the days of Jael.
1: Yeah, that's how the story is introduced.
0: Yep, yep. She's getting the glory. She's getting the
1: honor here. Right. Yeah, um, and Deborah as well. She's what comes right on the heels of that. Um, so it's it, it's highlighting the, the two women, really, to start off. Uh, the villagers cease in Israel. They cease to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Um, and then, you know, Barak is mentioned briefly um, <laughs> in the song. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of who's fronted. Um, what's interesting about... The song, well, I mean, it's just some beautiful, you know, poetry, very epic stuff. And <laughs> I mean, it says, you know, from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. And you're like, I didn't read about that in chapter four. But, you know, not yep. totally sure what that's referring to. Uh, maybe hailstones or something or, you know, who knows what. But uh, other things may be going on there. Consult your commentaries. But um, it ends up with this kind of blessing on, on jail. Um you know, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hebrew the Kenite of tent dwelling women, most blessed. And uh, it has that really poetic description of of uh, what she had done. so that praise of of jail. Um, most blessed of women be jail r- reminds me of um, the greeting to Mary in, in one of the gospels, right? Most blessed yeah. among women are you, Mary, uh, right? so in fact,
0: about Jael, it says, "Blessed shall she be above women in the tent." Yeah. So, yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's a so, m- Mary connection. Absolutely.
1: Right. Um, so, it, it it might make us just you know pause to think about uh, the the kind of role of 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 women in uh, these kinds of like acts of redemption. Um, in the sense of, I've heard. I think Alistair Roberts maybe is the first one who kind of alerted me to this, but that there's this theme of, um, you know, Eve was deceived by the serpent; she ate. But then there's a there ends up being reversals of that throughout Scripture, where the woman ends up deceiving the serpent, and that happens yes. um, multiple times in um, in Genesis, um, in Exodus with the Hebrew midwives mm-hmm. and deceiving. The Egyptians trying to slaughter the male children um, a number of times, and this would be another place right where that happens. Jael deceives Sisera um, and receives him, uh, but ends up actually crushing the head of the you know this this uh, serpent like figure uh, oppressor of Israel. Um, and Absolutely. but that trajectory, you know, it continues and it goes on, and we see it um, uh, even in the New Testament. So.
0: Yeah. Now, Alistair, you know, most directly, he's getting that from James Jordan. James Jordan Mm. makes a big deal about that in his judge's commentary, also in his commentary on Genesis and other places. Um, But I think you'll also come across that kind of imagery in uh, the early church fathers. That'll be there in um, some of the medieval commentators. Luther's going to make reference to this as well. Maybe not as systematically or consistently, but um, it's definitely a theme. Mm-hmm. And I think that may well be an answer to our question of why did the prayer book choose this passage? Uh, well, yes, it, it fits with the theme of God uh, going to the humble, going to the lowly. So there, there's like a magnificat element even to the, to the message. But I think also they, they saw here that you could do a Christological hook. Because anytime you're talking about Mary, you're also talking about Jesus – Mm-hmm. Um, that's giving you that promise of the gospel, um, and that is the trusting on God. You know, mm-hmm. you uh, you obey God be- because you trust him. <laughs> you mm-hmm. remember his covenant, and you know ultimately he's the one taking care of you. Right. Um, also interesting here, I mean, this passage is relevant uh, in modern discourse. Um, people want to make... You know, they want to go to it as a commentary on gender roles, and this is a popular one for sort of women empowerment. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that it is important to show the way God does use women, and uh, that's a huge emphasis here. But I think it's also important to show that He's the text is not saying, and therefore, this is normative and good, <laughs> and, women and women can all kind of basically do the same thing. It is really actually the opposite. The whole point is this is extraordinary. (laughs) This is sort of like the last thing you would expect. And so God is choosing a a weak, choosing a lowly person through whom to work out his miraculous powers. Uh, You know, that's the punchline. It's not Mm -hmm. to overturn our assumptions about human action, but it's to, uh, again, drive home the fact that he, God, is the one who is going to provide, and he will do so through the most unlikely
1: of people or circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's certainly a failure of... um you know, Barrack's the only kind of male figure who's a good guy here on the good team. Uh, but, but even he's showing, you know, a kind of lack of leadership, a lack of courage, a lack of nerve. And, and that may explain part of why Deborah, who is a prophetess, you know, that is something we see in scripture. And, you know, there are prophets and prophetesses in, in scripture in the Old Testament at various times. There's no priestesses, uh, notably, but there are, you know, prophetesses. Um, but but why was he judging? And it's like, well, if you have been like, you know Barrick. there i mean he's not going to judge anything like he's you know he has to kind of be coaxed into it and um and and so forth so that you know it's, it's definitely not an ideal scenario here playing out and i think you could kind of say that of every judge cycle this is not an ideal scenario here um you know not necessarily everything we read of here is like the model for you know uh a normative model for how you know yeah. we should all live the other thing too that um that we should notice is recognizing that broader theme of the woman deceiving the serpent and and, and so forth, and the role of women in God's um, acts of redemption. Um, the vast majority of the the female figures that were given in Scripture as as models or significant parts of that are are not playing this you know military sort of role here that we see uh, being ascribed to Deborah um, or to Jael. Most of them are um, in the context of. Of uh, of, uh, of family, of of childbirth, of marriage, and of children, and um, so that's kind of. If we're going to talk about normativity, we should look at that broader picture and see, you know, how that plays out. Um, throughout scripture and not just in you know a particular you know, passage
0: even here. even here actually it's interesting you you mentioned uh you, you kind of said that that Deborah is playing a military role but actually Deborah says she's a mother so judges 5 verse 7 i deborah arose um i arose a mother, a mother. in
1: israel yeah
0: yeah, she's a mother. She yeah. actually doesn't bear the sword and go out and fight. She's a prophetess, so God speaks through her, and she's holding this, uh, you could say, political authority as a judge, no doubt. Um, right. But she calls herself a mother. hmm And Barak is hes sort of a son that's not entirely obedient, right? <laughs> he's not listening to Mama entirely. Yeah. Um, and, and then Jael... Um, wife she's in her yes. tent she's got food I mean this is an entirely domestic situation sure. um, yeah. and the end of Judges 5 is is really shocking and like there's a whole lot going on here it parallels uh, Jael and Deborah with Sisera's mother so Sisera the bad guy uh, he's got a mama and she's not good (laughs) and her women advisors are not good this is this is wild wild stuff here judges 5 verse 28 uh, through 30. Um, the mother of sisera looked out a window and cried through the lattice why is his chariot so long in coming why tarry the wheels of his chariot her wise ladies answered her, Yea, she returned answer to herself, Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey? To every man a damsel or two. To Sisera, a prey of diverse colors, a prey of diverse colors of needlework, of diverse colors of needlework on both side. Meet for the necks of them that take the spoil. And Ooh. essentially they're saying, Oh, he's he won, and the reason he's not back yet is he's he's spoiling the Israelites. He's taking all the, the treasure and the booty. And that line, yeah. to every man a damsel or two, literally, and some of the more um, updated English translations will reflect this. It says, to every man a womb. Yeah. And so she is saying, Sisera's mother and the women in her court are saying, oh, they're raping the women of Israel right now. Mm. Uh, that's what's taking so long. Yeah. But don't worry, they'll be back pretty soon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that that's crazy uh, for me to read that. But again, in Bronze Age literature, I suppose that was normal. <laughs> that's right. just what you do. And... The mother of Sisera is using this as an excuse to console herself, to feel better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Judges, yeah. It, it gets dark. <laughs> it gets dark yeah. later in Judges 2, but yeah. Absolutely.
0: Um, but <clears throat> So, bad mamas <laughs> versus no, yeah. you know, the that's, true mama.
1: That's really helpful to see. How does... How does even, when we are even looking at Judges 4 through 5, you know, I, I just kind of mentioned the exceptional nature of Judges 4 through 5, but, the, you know, even paying attention to how it's, it's really talking, and yeah, it, it really is accentuating those sorts of things. Um. Motherhood And yeah, jail, just the way it describes jail, it, it, it's in the context of a house and, and, and the domesticity of a house that, that this still happens. So we do still see that coming through here. Um, yeah. And But yeah, there's that great ending too, verse 31 um, <clears throat> of Judges 5. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the Son when he goeth forth in his might. Right? Hmm. So what we just read of, this great defeat, so may all thine enemies perish, O Lord. And... Um, uh, but but let those who love you be as the sun. And that takes us back yes. to the collect again, right? Preserve us in your Absolutely. love and fear.
0: And it, it ties us to the epistle reading. Uh, the world hates us, um, but we are to love. So if we love God, we'll shine like the sun. Yeah. So I think, yeah, this now it starts to make a lot more sense. Why choose this selection? Um, it's continuing that conflict holy war theme last week read from joshua so we're still doing battle um and we've got love versus hate and then we've also got this message don't refuse god don't don't make excuses don't you know tempt him ask for more and more trust him and he will fight for you Uh, Because ultimately, um, it isn't even that, oh, Deborah and oh, JL, but it's God working through them because he can work uh, through any of us. Um, And so hear him, be faithful, and go forth and uh, follow his teaching.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: Well, we could, uh, we could say a lot more about these passages. I mean, just the, the Judges' passages are super rich, uh, full of things, um, but we, we should probably bring it to, to an ending for today. Um, but boy, you know, I hope that if listeners, if nothing else, maybe the, the, the BCP selections will just get them excited about certain texts of Scripture that maybe they haven't uh, spent a lot of time mm-hmm. with before. You know how how about preaching Judges four and five on uh, the second Sunday after Trinity?
1: <laughs> yeah, so
0: maybe that could be a good a good uh, challenge to take
1: up. Yeah, that is uh, the challenge I plan on taking up. We'll see how it goes, but yeah, oh, there's a very lot of great good. stuff here. Yeah, so
0: I I also I'm going to do that. So um, biblical theologians, right? We're, we're thinking alike. So much to talk about.
1: Well I, I really enjoy preaching these uh, first lessons you know um, re- <laughs> we talked about frequency of communion earlier but like if you, if you are able to do a less than weekly communion and you're able to do morning prayer or maybe if you're able to just add in morning prayer somehow you know every now and then, even if you do you know, holy communion every week, um, still if you're able to get these first lessons in there, wow they are. I really enjoy preaching these, like you're telling a story, you're doing biblical theology, you're tying it to the gospel, uh, there's application, there's, um, yeah, it's always a delight to uh, to preach from these lessons, so.
0: Yeah, and there are uh, there are rubrics to do that, um, you know, if you're doing communion every week and not doing morning prayer, there's still, there are some tricks where you can add oh, right. in an Old yeah. Testament lesson if you need to, uh, or you can do... Um, what what my church here did for quite a while they did morning prayer um through the um first lesson in canticle and then they pivoted and moved into anti-communion um and Mm -hmm. so you could just do you could go into communion at that point um that would be a way to do it as well it'd be a little bit longer um, but yeah it would give you that reading and yeah um, i do think those first lessons are very important because um, if you just do the New Testament lessons, uh, you'll be getting lots of good stuff. Obviously, there's no no slight against the New Testament, but you probably won't get uh, as much biblical history. Uh, you won't necessarily be forced to reckon with some of these like hard, challenging passages. Like, you know, what do we make of this conquest era stuff? Right? It just and in the modern world, Christians are not getting that in other places so, so if you're not giving it to your people in church they, they probably aren't getting it ever yeah. so yeah it's definitely worthwhile uh, definitely worth yeah. uh, making an effort to put it into your services yeah all right, well, thanks for listening. This has been the uh, BCP Propers podcast, where we work through the lectionary of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I'm Stephen Wedgworth, joined with uh, my host Clayton Hutchins. Hope that you have enjoyed us, and uh, please tune in again next week. Till then, uh, take care and God bless.